Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl. It is Tuesday, July 13th. On today's show, the wistfulness of sports and the feeling of what could have been. Before we get there, I have very, very bad news for everybody who is listening. Um, Last night, I had nothing to gamble on. It was a terrible night for me. Uh, It symbolizes the darkest time on the sports calendar. MLB has gone to the All-Star break. Uh, The NBA Finals, days off. Stanley Cup, gone. Football on the horizon. There's nothing there. It's this great gaping void in life that we all feel and bear the weight of. So last night, there was one thing, baseball home run derby. Uh, And I don't have a lot of respect for myself, but the bare minimum is that I can't allow myself to bet upon the home run derby. So I didn't. I didn't gamble on anything. I don't have a reason today why gambling should be legal in Utah, though it remains true that it should be. Uh, And today, we're just going to take a brief pause, a moment of silence, if you will, for all the bets that were not placed yesterday and will not be placed tonight, and we'll have to wait until tomorrow and the NBA Finals are back in our lives. So now, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. What could have been? Um, Three words that everybody on planet Earth has felt the weight of at one time or another. My favorite artist uh, in the musical world is Bob Dylan, and the best album that he has ever put out, in my opinion, is Blood on the Tracks, an album that was written around the time that his marriage was dissolving and really touched on this particular idea and feeling, um, the balance between what could have been on one hand and acceptance on the other side, and just how do you blend these two contrasting things together so that you're sane and you can live life in a manner that is joyful um, but also remembers the things that you once had. Uh, This ties into sports because it's kind of the very nature of how sports are structured. I go over nearly every show, just the tiny things that separate wins from losses, that in turn separate our perception of athletes and teams from champion to loser, from good to bad. Again, stark contrasts that hinge upon virtually nothing. Um, A puck hits a post, a ball bounces in and out, a football hangs up in the air a little too long, all that kind of stuff. Uh, When you're a participant... I think it's easier to separate these two things, the feeling of what could have been and acceptance of just, this is how it is. And I speak from experience on that front when it comes to golf, because you have to find a balance between those two things within that sport. Otherwise, you would be driven to insanity about five rounds into your competitive career, because every single round is just, it's a buildup of what ifs, of what could have been. Every single time you finish, You could look at your scorecard and say, yeah, I could have been six shots better. That 76 could have been a 70 because I could have not hit it out of bounds here and the ball could have bounced off a tree and stayed in play here and this and this and this. I mean, every single round. I have friends who every single round will try to say stuff like that and I'll shut them down immediately. And I go, yeah, that's the nature of this sport. Um, You trust that over the course of time, all this stuff evens out. And a lot of times it does within a round. 
you hit a few shots, you get a good break, you get a bad break, and it kind of all bounces out. On the wrong days, it'll drive you to insanity because you feel like you played well and you shot a 79. And on an opposite day, you feel like you played poorly and you shot a 71. This kind of stuff bounces out, and I think it's easier to embrace and separate when you are a participant. However, uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum, one that I'm also there as a part of is a fan, where it's almost even more magnified. Because after every single game that I watch, I'll go down the checklist. Man, if you just change that one particular thing, you know, if they hit the three-pointer at this correct time, or if the receiver caught the pass on third down and did this or did that. I mean, every single game, it's just, again, a buildup of these what-ifs. And as a fan, when I'm just sitting there watching it, and I either have money on it or emotion invested in it or a combination of those things... They're really prominent, and that's all that I think about when I'm watching it, even as the game is playing out. Man, if that person just hadn't dropped an interception at the end of the half, this could be a 10-point game in my favor instead of a three-point deficit. Um, Every single game features these what-if moments in spades, and every single season is just a buildup of these games on an individual level, and then game after game after game, and depending on the sport, playoff series that's comprised of seven games or all this kind of stuff. Uh, It's Probably, in my opinion, the single biggest tie that threads together fans across separate fan bases. Uh, This idea that I'll show you my scars if you show me yours. Because people who follow sports closely, uh, it's just story upon story that touches on this particular subject. What could have been for my team? What could have been for this athlete that I really love following their career? So I start thinking about this idea, and I start thinking about how it spans across every single sport. Uh, This past NFL season, just off the top of my head as I'm preparing for this show, I start thinking of the teams that lost. And I start right at the top, and I go, the Kansas City Chiefs, incredibly talented team uh, that I think a lot of people thought were going to win the Super Bowl. Pat Mahomes, that high-octane offense running around, and they lose the Super Bowl. They get blown out by Tampa, and they're sitting at home just thinking, man, What could have been if we just had a healthy offensive line in that Super Bowl? Uh, Anybody who watched the game, you you felt within one quarter that I don't think they can win because they cannot block. And Pat Mahomes is running for his life on every single play. Uh, And part of that is because Kansas City suffered a lot of injuries along the offensive line going into that game. And it never really reared its head until then because the final injuries were in the AFC title game against Buffalo, a game that Kansas City kind of won running away. And we didn't have a full concept of what this team would be with a piecemeal offensive line. In the Super Bowl, we saw it. It was them unable to do anything against probably the best defensive line in football. Kansas City, sitting at home. What could have been? Uh, I rewind one round prior, and I've talked about this multiple times on this show, but it is and will be one of the losses that will stick with me Uh, the longest when it comes to the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers, favorite team, favorite quarterback, because he's running out of opportunities to win another Super Bowl. And that game is just, it's a million different swing plays that if any one of them goes in Green Bay's direction, uh, there's a very real chance that they've won. And they're playing Kansas City with a piecemeal offensive line in the Super Bowl. You know, I, I rewind at the end of the first half and I think of the uncalled pass interference that results in Rodgers' only interception of the game. And I go, if the refs just called that, Green Bay has the ball past midfield. They're driving in for a field goal. Very different ball game. Instead, Tampa Bay has the ball, and now they're driving with less than a minute to go. And Brady floats up a pass, 
Green Bay's backup safety runs in. It's just right there in the breadbasket, and he whiffs on it. You know, literally a gimme interception, a marshmallow floating up in the sky, and he just drops it. Great what if. Especially when two plays later, we think Tampa's settling for a field goal, and Scotty Miller runs down the sideline. Green Bay blows a coverage. Brady throws a touchdown with almost no time on the clock. I mean, just the swings within this game, they're enormous. Green Bay comes back on the other side of the half. Aaron Jones gets hit on a crossing route from Rodgers, gets exploded across the middle, ball flies up in the air. Uh, We all know just the random chance of recovering a fumble. It's pretty much a 50-50 proposition. Sometimes you recover, sometimes you don't. In this instance, Tampa picks it up, runs it back inside the 10. They score Leonard Fournette touchdown right thereafter. Just all these things. LaFleur's decision to settle for a field goal inside the 10-yard line, down eight with the clock ticking, uh, and Green Bay doesn't get the ball back. Because, again, another swing play uh, in a game that the refs never called pass interference. They call pass interference on the climactic play that gives Tampa first down ball game. Um, The what could have been aspect of that game, because I'm a fan of the team, I'm really, really tuned into even the most minute details. You know, I could go back into the first quarter of that game. And that's what fandom is. And, again, I think that's what really threads together fans in general especially ones that follow this stuff closely because I can talk about that and it's a universal experience. Another fan of a different team says, oh man, that reminds me of this particular game. Let me give you a 50-play rundown of all the swing plays that cost my team a chance at winning this playoff game or winning the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, you, re- you rewind a nether round earlier and all this stuff, it's there within every game. Baltimore Ravens against the Buffalo Bills, just a weird swirling wind, defensive affair, who the hell knows what's going to happen in it. It's just kind of a randomized chance football game. It almost simulated what golf is. The elements played such a large role that you didn't really know what was going to happen. You just gave yourself up to them and said, what will be, will be. Uh, And the climactic play of that game, it's Lamar Jackson. He gets fooled by a coverage in the red zone. He throws it, Buffalo intercepts, runs it all the way back for a touchdown. Uh, It's the swing play in a game that was just grinded out defense to the maximum degree. Um, same round, Cleveland Browns, who had an awesome season in their own right. Kevin Stefanski comes in, turns around the franchise. Baker Mayfield, he, he taps into what he had his rookie season. They're playing the Chiefs. Nobody thinks they have a chance. Uh, and Pat Mahomes gets injured in that game. The next thing you know, the Browns, they have a chance to win this game. They're down five. Kansas City with a backup quarterback, Chad Henney. They have the ball around midfield. And every Cleveland Browns fan is sitting at home going, what could have been if Andy Reid just didn't have enormous balls enough to channel in a play call on fourth down at midfield up five to his backup quarterback with a minute 17 on the clock. And nobody thinks they're going to snap the ball, including Tony Romo, the announcer. They snap it. It's a full sprint rollout. Tyreek Hill sprinting along the same side. Henny hits him. He runs past the first down line, slides. And it happens in the blink of an eye. Uh, and it's just crazy. Even watching it, I went, I can't believe that they called that play. And then also that it was successful. Uh, just the what could have been over and over. Constant theme of every game, every sport. Uh, and it really shines a light on why I'm continually talking about it's very funny that we think legacies are simply tied into wins and losses. When in actuality, there's so much that goes into whether or not a game is won or lost that it seems very strange that this is one of the sole things that we point to uh, when we separate individual players or teams. 
the team in the NFL who's come to symbolize that for me over the last five years is the New Orleans Saints because they've probably had the most talented roster in football over the course of the last five years. Uh, and they have just a, a variety of ways that they've found some their own fault and some just chance to lose. Last year, they played the Bucks, uh, and everybody who's a Saints fan or bet on them is sitting at home going, what could have been if Drew Brees doesn't turn into a pumpkin in that game uh, and his arm is just noodling these balls five yards at a time? And even with that, the Saints are up seven in the second half, and Jared Cook, he's running cross midfield, and he fumbles, and it's a big swing play within that game. And the last couple years, the Saints feature two of the greatest what-if moments in NFL history. The first one, the Stephon Diggs touchdown, the the miracle in Minneapolis. He catches a 60-some-odd-yard touchdown as the clock expires to win the game. Marcus Williams, the safety, he kind of blows the play and the coverage and the tackle. It's the only play in NFL history that's ended on a walk-off touchdown that swung the game uh, in in the playoffs. And then the year the Rams go to the Super Bowl. Uh, They play the Saints in the NFC title game. We all remember the pass interference call on the goal line that inspired the NFL to institute replay specifically for pass interferences. It was a truly egregious miscall that uh, cost the Saints a chance at winning that game. Instead, they settle for a field goal. It goes into overtime. Uh, They should have had first and goal at the two-yard line, scoring a touchdown to win the game. Um, It's just all these things piling up over and over, you know. Uh, winning is really hard because it relies upon a some things you can control and b a lot of things that you can't. So when you lose, uh, which everybody does except the one team, it really increases that feeling of wistfulness for the losers because by season's end, there's 29 teams or 31 teams or in golf, you know, 100 some odd people within a field and they sit there and they look at the winner and they go, man, what could have been uh, if just this one tiny thing went in my favor? I go to another sport that recently wrapped up, the NHL. Um, the Tampa Bay Lightning, they repeat. Uh, Stanley Cup champions this year, last year. They go on a boat parade yesterday, which was high comedy for a variety of reasons. They dent the Stanley Cup. It's now being sent back to to Montreal for repairs. Everybody's drunk on the river in Tampa Bay. You can only imagine what that's like. Nikita Kucherov's getting interviewed on live TV and he can barely even speak. It's really good stuff when it comes to that particular thing. Um, But seeing that and just remembering this year's Stanley Cup playoffs and last year's, I think again of all of these uh, swing plays, all of the feelings of wistfulness, all of these what could have been moments. Um, the Islanders in Game 7, Eastern Conference Finals, or Conference Finals, whatever you want to call them. They take the Stanley Cup champions down to Game 7. They lose by one goal. I guarantee you they're sitting at home going, man, there's just, you switch one tiny thing, and we're the people on a boat on a river bashing the Stanley Cup and getting drunk as hell and really just really getting excited about this seminal moment in our lives. Colorado Avalanche, my team, you know, I've talked about them multiple times, but the 2-2 series against Vegas, game five goes to overtime. Um, turnover in their own offensive zone. Mark Stone goes in. He scores an overtime winner. Vegas wins in six. There's all, in hockey more than any sport, you can always boil it down to just so many individual things that if they go in your favor, you could have won the game. You could have won the series. You could have won the Stanley Cup. Even within the last few years with Colorado, one year prior, Colorado's beset by injuries, but still they're there in the conference semis. 
and it goes down to game seven against Dallas, and they're playing their third-string goaltender, Michael Hutchinson. And even still, Colorado takes a lead with four minutes to go in regulation. Vlad Nemestikov scores a goal. And I think that this is going to be it. They're going to win. They'll get healthy. They'll be ready in the conference finals. And instead, Dallas comes right down. They score. Game seven overtime. They score. Uh, That's the season for Colorado, even a year prior. Colorado takes San Jose to game seven in the conference semis. There's an enormous offsides call against Gabe Landeskog that still to this day, I think myself and a lot of Avalanche fans and a lot of hockey fans in general don't think was a correct or fair call. Uh, they're looking at replay to see whether or not he's onside or offside, and you can't really tell. They overturn a goal on the ice. They take it away from Colorado. Colorado ends up losing the game by one. Just what if after what if? You know, Colorado loses to Vegas this year. Vegas is on the other side going, we lost a bunch of overtime games in the conference finals to Montreal. What could have been for our season? All these teams uh, that were awesome throughout the season, Carolina Hurricanes, Boston Bruins, Pittsburgh Penguins, Toronto Maple Leafs, who were up 3-1 in the first round against Montreal. And lose game five in overtime. And lose game six in overtime. And then lose game seven on home ice. Uh, In hockey, the separation of the very best teams is virtually nothing. They're all talented. Hockey is a random sport in general. So you just have to kind of accept that. Like I spoke about at the start of the episode. How do you find a balance between the wistfulness, the feeling of what could have been, and just the acceptance that this is how it is. Uh, And if it didn't favor me this year, which in all likelihood it won't, I just got to... Trust in this team uh, and this talent and run it back next year and hope that things are different. Uh, But still, even accepting that and knowing that every single year, all these teams sit at home and all the fans of these teams sit at home and they watch Tampa hoist the cup and get drunk on a boat and they go, man, that could have been my team. That could have been me. Um, That's just part of sports. The constant theme uh, of the way that sports in general are structured and especially being a fan of a team or of a player. The NBA, you know, this year, I've said it once, I'll say it again. It's a year unlike any other. And everybody's watching the Bucks and Suns playing the NBA Finals and just going, this could have been my team. Um, the injuries have, are, they're so extensive. They've played such a role in shaping this year's playoffs that they don't necessarily need to be repeated um, because they've affected so many teams. You know, they submarine a team like the Lakers, who I think a lot of people thought were going to be there at the end or win the title again. And instead, AD's injured and LeBron's playing hobbled. But that was the story of almost every team. Um, and it tied into this feeling of what could have been. But even with the injuries, teams are still sitting at home. Fans are still sitting at home going, man, that could have been us, the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, we're in game seven overtime against the Milwaukee Bucks. And if Kevin Durant's shoe size is a size 14 instead of a size 18. They win in regulation because he hits essentially a buzzer beater three and the Nets are moving on and they're probably beating Atlanta and they're probably playing against the Suns in the finals and who knows how that would go. Uh, The Clippers opposite them on the other side in the Western Conference. They're watching the Suns and going, we lost a hard fought six game series without our best player. Even within that six-game series, I mean, game two, it's a pretty big swing moment in our franchise's history because we have the game in the bag, and Phoenix calls this incredible alley-oop that DeAndre Ayton stuffs down into the hoop. Some people think it's goaltend because we're not really sure of the rules. As it turns out, there can't be goaltending on an inbound pass. They throw it right over the cylinder, grabs it, stuffs it, swings the game. Now Phoenix is up 2-0 going back to L.A. instead of a 1-1 series, which watching the game, everybody kind of thought it would be. Great swing moment uh, within that series and within the Clippers moving on to the NBA Finals or 
staying at home and, and watching these two teams play. Uh, and it goes way past all these teams. You know, Atlanta, they're feeling the same way. Trey Young goes down. If he just had kind of stayed healthy, Giannis got injured, and that series was there for the taking against Milwaukee. The Sixers against Atlanta, who lost the, the round prior, they're sitting there going, man, Ben Simmons just didn't turn into a pumpkin in his own right and gave us anything in that series we could have won. You know, if Embiid wasn't playing as hobbled, there's all the what-ifs that pile up, uh, individual moments and larger picture ideas. Utah Jazz, the team that I follow closely here in the state that I live, you know, if Terrence Mann doesn't morph into this incredible score in Game 6, if he doesn't score 39 points, we could have been in Game 7. We could have been winning. We could have been playing Phoenix. We could have been taking them to a hard-fought series that if the breaks go in our favor, we win. They all pile up over and over and over. Uh, And that's why this thread is so prominent within fandom and within the athletes and teams themselves because it exists for every single person. Uh, Almost every season, you will be the one who feels this feeling, the wistfulness, the what could have been. Um, And and in the one year you don't, it's awesome. But more times than not, and for some teams and players, for the entire duration of your career, that's what you will feel. So that goes into the biggest event of the week, in my opinion, um, the British Open, major championship golf. Playing over at Royal St. George begins on Thursday. The British Open is a major that I love because it taps into... And the golf versus, or the golf as art versus golf as science debate, it really taps into the golf as art side. Uh, it's windy, the link style golf course. It encourages creativity, a uh, wide variety of ways that you can play shots. And it really leans into the unknowable side of golf. Uh, the side that I love, the spiritual side, the mystical side, all that stuff that I've spoke about before on this show. The British Open is that. Um, And so it sets the stage for really prime viewing opportunities because the sport itself is already built upon what ifs more than I think any sport. I go back to my own career and I say literally every single round I play, I can go down the scorecard on every single hole. And I go, if the wind didn't kick up at this time, that four was a three. And if the ball bounced correctly off of the ground on this one, Uh, The way that the ground is naturally sloped, this could have been this. And if this had hit the rock and gone in play rather than out of play, I mean, you go down every single time. And if you really lean into that and and keep going over and over uh, the what could have been aspect of golf, you will be driven insane. Trust me. I've been there and I reached a breaking point of I can't be this. I have to accept that a lot of this sport is not controllable on my end. So what makes this so interesting and why I think the British Open and major championship golf is so compelling is because a lot of times uh, the way that public perception is built is that a golfer's legacy will hinge entirely upon major championship performance in general, but sometimes, depending upon the golfer, one individual major championship. So this brings to mind... uh, a venue and a major championship that I've been thinking about a lot recently because the U.S. Open was played at Torrey Pines uh, a month or so ago, and the last time it was played there was 2008, which was a very famous moment in the history of golf. Uh, 
And so there was a lot of stuff that was written and a lot of videos that were produced about the last time that major championship was held at Torrey Pines. Um, and in 2008, we have Rocco Media, who he's a six-time PGA Tour winner. He's won on the tour, very accomplished in his own right, um, but has not won any major championships. Again, the one thing that for reasons unknown to me, a person who just, again, I don't necessarily buy into the hard divide of if you won, you're good. If you lost, you're bad. And this really reflects strongly upon your legacy. Um, he doesn't have the thing that a lot of people value above all else, the major championship. So through 72 holes, um, he ends up clinging to a one-shot lead in the clubhouse. Uh, and he's sitting there in the scorer's tent watching the final group come down. And Tiger Woods is in the final group. Tiger Woods, who is, this is the last moment in Tiger Woods' career where he is the untouchable Tiger Woods as people know him. Um, the scandal has not hit. We don't know the extent of his injuries at the time, which are legendary. Uh, Tiger Woods plays that tournament on a torn ACL and multiple stress fractures in his leg. Like, I don't use the word legendary lightly when I refer to that performance. Uh, it, it's truly almost an incomprehensible mastering of body because as anybody who golfs knows, if you have any tiny injury, it's almost impossible to execute your golf swing because one tiny imbalance throws you off. And now what normally is a fluid golf swing, you're thinking about this elbow injury that you have that's not huge, but you just have it and now you're swinging differently and you're trying to overcompensate. Woods is playing this on a torn ACL and multiple stress fractures. And he comes into the 18th hole down one for the tournament. And now he's on the green. And he's got a 12-footer for birdie. Um, and it sets up one of the most famous moments of his career. But as I'm watching this in retrospect, what really stands out about this moment is the opposite side. It's the Rocco Media side. Because it is one of the greatest symbols of what I'm talking about within this show. Uh, the feeling of what could have been. And, and I was watching a video about this not too long ago where Woods is talking about the putt. And he's saying, you know, it's later on in the day. The greens are a little bumpier. Uh, and I'm trying to play it a little firmer. And there's a video camera angle of this putt. It's zoomed in as far as it can possibly be zoomed. You know, the ball is essentially taking up the entire frame. And so the putt is going. Uh, and you can see the ball in slow motion. And it's bumping along the ground. Popping up, popping up, popping up. <sighs> And this ball is rolling, and you think about everything that has to go into this putt. Woods has to read it. Um, he has to make a stroke that he thinks is correct for the line and the speed. He has to believe that this putt is going in, a really big aspect of putting in general, just belief and will. And then he has to believe that this putt is going to stay on that line, despite the fact that the greens are bumpy. And despite the fact that when his ball is getting to the hole... It gets to the right edge, and it's going with what looks like a little too much pace. And instead, uh, there's a million outcomes that can happen there. Um, and a lot of people have felt the, the sharp pain in your heart when you're the putter, and you hit the side of the hole, and it horseshoes, or it lips out, or it keeps buzzing by, and you go, oh, I was so close to hitting that putt. There was no difference between it going in or out. I made a good stroke. I controlled what I can control. Um, and now I just kind of accept that maybe this wasn't my day. And the ball hits the side of the hole, and it slurps back in. 
and it's just mayhem, you know? It's Tiger Woods, the iconic photo, the double fist pump, he's screaming, the crowd is going just ballistic. Um, again, this is Tiger Mania, the last, like, true, true moment where Tiger was untouchable, peak of his powers, and nobody believed that he could lose. And so we go back to the other side, and there's kind of the timeless clip of Rocco in the scores tent. There's video of this moment, you know, where he's watching and he's got his arms folded and you can hear the crowd noise because he's watching it on the screen and the crowd's going bonkers and it slurps in and, and he goes, he's got this kind of wry smile on his face. He goes, man, I knew he'd make it, you know. Um, and it's, in retrospect, a really incredible moment because you get the sense, knowing how it plays out, they go and play an 18-hole playoff the next day and Rocco plays great again. And after 18 holes of a playoff, they're still tied. And so Tiger ends up winning on the 19th playoff hole. You know, Rocco takes it as far as you could possibly take a golf tournament. 18 extra playoff holes and an extra playoff hole on top of that. Um, But he ends up losing. And you go back to that moment and the smile and just the wryness. And when I read between the lines, it's a feeling of what could have been. Because I think he understands in that moment, oh boy, I'm going to have to go toe-to-toe against the most untouchable golfer we've ever seen, the most talented, the one who everybody believes that there's no possible way when he's put in a pressure-packed moment that he will lose. And I'm going to have to go against him. And again, to Rocco's credit, he takes it as far as you could possibly go to boil those lines between winning and losing down to almost nothing. Uh, It can boil down to this closely panned camera on a putt that it's bumping up and down in the air. A little bump knocks it off course, and Rocco Media is a major champion. Um, And all of this stuff, it ties into just, it's why I can't ever wrap my head around how a perception of an athlete or a team can be drastically altered by stuff like this. You know, Rocco's performance is the exact same whether or not that putt misses or makes. Like an incredible four days and end up being five days because they played the playoff the next day. An incredible stretch of golf from this dude. Again, a six-time PGA Tour winner. Uh, and whether or not Woods's putt falls in on the 18th, whether or not just random chance helps a putt grab the edge of the hole and go in, um, he's played that way regardless. You know, He's already in the clubhouse there. He's played really spectacular 72 holes of golf. Um, and so if that putt falls out you know, in an alternate world, it completely alters his legacy and the way that people talk about him. Major champion, that label is attached to him. Um, and instead, in this world, in this reality, it falls in. And he goes into another playoff, and he takes that to the end, and he loses. And he's kind of a side note on this really seminal moment within Woods' career. Um, the moment where he played an entire round, an entire tournament of golf on a torn ACL and multiple stress fractures and drilled one of the most iconic putts of his career in a moment that I probably couldn't even pull the trigger on a putt, much less make it, um, and then limped his way through a playoff and ended up winning. Um, Instead, that happens. And now it's the side note, it's the footnote in history, um, and it circles back to the theme of this episode and the clip of Rocco watching in that tent, the arms folded, the wry smile, uh, the I knew he'd make it, and just a really overwhelming feeling on my part as the viewer of everything that I'm talking about in this show. 
and that threads together fandom and competition. Because when I look at his face in that moment, when I watch the video or see it in still frame, you know, I look at it and I say, you're never going to see a real human expression that more aptly conveys the wistfulness of these three words, you know, what could have been. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This show is produced by Weston Tanner and can be consumed in a variety of ways. You can download it as a podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or the platform of your choice. You can also view it in video form via the Beehive TV app, which can be downloaded on Apple, Google, Roku, and Amazon Fire. For more information, go to noballer.com.